Welcome back to Highly Respected. I'm your host, Scott Greer. Today, we're going to have another incredible episode for everyone, so I know you're going to enjoy it. And today's main topic I'm going to talk about is something I got a question on a few weeks ago, and it was about this debate that's happening on the right-wing Twitter, particularly between academic agent, who goes by OG Roland Rat on Twitter. I'm sure a lot of you have seen him or have... Uh, followed his YouTube clips, and Aron McIntyre. And the question is over whether they're putting the woke away. The regime is putting the woke away. An academic agent argues the regime is going to put the woke away in order to make people more loyal to the regime. You know, there might be a war they need to call on white men for. And so they're going to put away the woke to inspire more loyalty to the regime. That's the basic gist of his argument. Aron McIntyre and a lot of other people disagree, saying the woke is here to stay unless there is massive radical change delivered by the right or a right-wing government of some sort. So they have this debate, and they have a bet on it as whether woke is going to be seriously reduced by May of next year, I believe, May of 2025. I don't know how they're going to have an objective standard for whether woke has been reduced or not. I've imagined they're going to have another argument (laughs) over who deserves a cigar from that debate. Um, But we'll see how that works out. So I'm going to give my own take on putting the woke away because I think there's been a number of events that have happened recently that put this in perspective and illustrate what's going on. And I have my own thoughts on this. Um, I guess I would be a centrist on this debate. Uh, I'm not fully, you know, in line with either take. I probably would be more along with Aron, I guess, with the core fundamentals of what you consider woke and what is not woke. And, and so I would maybe more agree with Aron on this take. But I have I have things that they are tamping down on wokeness. But I don't think this is a conscious decision in order to make people more loyal to the regime. Or if it's saying the regime is calling down to corporations is like, uh, too much trans stuff. We need to lay off it. Uh, look at what happened to Bud Light. I think there are just some changes going on in America. And corporations and marketing execs and others are responding to it. So to go along with this, I think there is a news event that happened over the weekend that illustrates that maybe some of the wokeness or at least some of the cancel culture is being minimized to an extent. To an extent is a that's a key way. And over the weekend, Shane Gillis, who's now a very popular comedian, hosted Saturday Night Live. And Shane Gillis was first became well-known for being hired by Saturday Night Live and then fired for making some racially insensitive jokes on a podcast almost five years ago. He was hired in September of 2019. He was fired uh, as soon as it was announced. And his dismissal illustrated the height of cancel culture and maybe you could say even wokeness, which I would say from middle of the Trump administration, 2018, to 2022, I would say, is peak wokeness. Uh, I would say this is at a time where you could get fired from your job just for being a Trump supporter. This is a time where, especially post-Floyd, there was all these major changes to happen. If you really actually, it would even be later, it'd be 2020 to 2022, that would be really peak. But there would have been this buildup during the Trump years that have had this. And this is so... Like I said, you could be fired for very 
innocuous things such as voting for Trump. Uh, there was a story of this guy who worked on Wall Street who was a Trump donor who had a get forced out of his job. I think this was back in 2016. There were numerous, numerous stories that where you could just be known as like having a MAGA hat and this could jeopardize your career risks or jeopardize your employment. And that was very common. And also at the time, this was when they're ramping up Pride Month as a high holy month. And like, you know, you go into any restaurant and there's just like pride flags everywhere for the the entire month of June, which Pride Month became a huge thing during the Trump years. Not due to Trump. It was just this cultural moment that had been happening that had been stirring up in the 2010s and found full expression in the reaction, the left-wing reaction to Trump. I would probably say around 2018, 2019, where it became oppressive in, in Pride Month and that it was like everywhere. Um, that was one change. And then DEI and critical race theory began ramping up in schools and businesses and in employment training. This is also a time where every embassy is now flying the Pride flag. And then sometimes even flying the Black Lives Matter flag. This is a time where everyone came out in favor of Black Lives Matter. And if you didn't have a black square on your Instagram, you may be um, have to have be brought in for questioning at your place of employment. And there's also these times where, you know, there'd be a popular person, whether a writer, a comedian or something, would be canceled for things that they had said long ago that they had found out. It's like, this person's terrible we're going to fire them. And a lot of this was driven by the explosion in online media is that all these news reporters at HuffPost, Vice, wherever, were eager for news stories. And what better news story is than to try to cancel people? So they would go out and try to find these stories. But now with uh, massive media layoffs, as I've written about, and Vice is now shutting down, which was one of the worst uh, news outlets for going after and trying to cancel people and pushing very left-wing agenda is now going away and the news layoffs continue at a rapid at a rapid pace you're having a lot of these changes so there's now a bit of a difference between now and 2021 i would say now does this mean we're having the full-on return to the 90s as a lot of conservatives pine for, I think academic agent calls it a return to fresh prince or back to fresh prince, which uh, fresh prince of Bel Air, popular uh, Will Smith sitcom of the early '90s. I some listeners may be too young for, to remember it, but I think for most people they would. And that's the peak time period that people want to return to. Even Tucker Carlson says, "I want to have a return to 1993." We aren't having quite that. And it's not a really hitting the rewind button to a certain time. But there is a calming down effect of this stuff. And I would say, you know, a turning point, even though I made fun of this, I thought it was not serious. It wouldn't work. But there was a bit of a turning point last year with the Bud Light boycott. And I think this was at a moment that people had thought that there had been an excess of wokeness. People legitimately thought that Bud Light was producing 24 packs of beer cans with Dylan Mulvaney's face on it. And that was maybe the straw that broke the camel's back. And the Bud Light boycott worked. You know, Bud Light <laughs> took down all this stuff. It fired the marketing team that was responsible for this. They've been desperate to have ads to appeal to 
normie Americans, especially even right-wing Americans. Shane Gillis is now a Bud Light uh, influencer or Bud Light-sponsored influencer. They're getting Peyton Manning to do ads, and everyone loves Peyton Manning. And they're doing a lot of military stuff as well to win back a lot of that audience they lost with Dylan, the Dylan Mulvaney, uh, the one 24-pack of Dylan Mulvaney beer cans. And then I think that was at a time where they realized that there was now an economic cost to the more excesses. And then when Pride Month started off, there was Target that had a very excessive measure where they were going to produce these satanic trans shirts um, for kids. And obviously people were outraged by that. And then Target had to pull them away and apologize. I believe they offered some sort of apology for it. And they tamped down some of the Pride Month stuff that they were about to, that Target was about to do. And a lot of corporations were found to have not kept their banners as Pride colors for the whole month. The military didn't do Pride colors for the whole month and they had been doing that in years past. And Pride Month was not as oppressive as it would have been in 2019. But this is still very different than say the 2000s or the 90s because Pride Month is still celebrated. These companies still do Pride stuff during the month of June. So it's not quite a total return. It's just simply we're cutting off the excesses of this. And you can even see this with a lot of what's going on in Hollywood. All these woke films that they've been producing have been bombs. And this happened before, this was starting to happen before the Bud Light boycott. So I wouldn't maybe say the Bud Light boycott was the total turning point, but it was a sign of something that the American public wasn't uh, thrilled with this. And Disney had two woke kids movies that lost them $300 million. They've had some other woke movies as well throughout 2023 that have bombed. And so have some of these other movies that are non-kids movies. They are really failing with this woke stuff. And then there's like even these films that are getting critically acclaimed that are somewhat of a rejection of wokeness, like American Fiction. This is a critically acclaimed film by a left-wing writer, a black guy. And it's meant to make fun of white liberals for for indulging like Ibram X. Kendi and these and Ta-Nehisi, Ta-Nehisi Coates, this type of stuff. And it's this black writer who's like fed up with all these white liberals and he writes some over-the-top uh, black literature that we now have been seeing championed in the years following the Floyd Revolution. And the white liberals love it. And it's a mockery of the wokeness going too far and leftism going too far even though it's coming from a left-wing perspective. And the fact that that's like a hit or somewhat of a hit and critically claimed, it does speak to some of the moment that we're having right now. And you can even see this as like the cancellation is not quite as effective. I've talked about this in a lot of podcasts with a lot of their tactics that they've gone after conservatives, which in years past... Uh, You know, going back to the peak time period of purge within political circles, uh, you know, the great example of this is Darren Beatty. Darren Beatty was in the Trump White House, and the mere fact that he was at a conference where Peter Brimlow spoke forced him out of the Trump administration. Not like a normal, like, corporate job or something, but out of the Trump administration, out of a right-wing administration. He was forced out simply for appearing at this conference. That's 2018, and also my docs uh, followed, like, a a month or two after that. 
which I, <laughs> I may have had a little bit more of a criminal record <laughs> or a wrong thinker uh, record than Darren, or at least what I was attacked for. But those are all these things that could happen. It's just simply one tweet or one association within conservatism or within the political sphere could just end your career. I know guys who got fired for, uh, you know, making fun of Charlie Kirk during the Groyper Wars. I and I knew that there were several people at conservative outlets that were told specifically that they could not cover this topic. They had to cover in a very specific way. You know, there was very much marching orders on this, and people were very much, you know, you could not associate with certain people in the late 2010s and probably going into 2021. But now it's completely different. You know, over the last year, we saw several people uh, get doxxed and nothing happened to them. You know, Pedro Gonzalez, you know, nothing really happened to him. And you had congressmen defending him and all this stuff. He acted like he was a huge martyr, but really nothing happened to him, especially not compared to people, what happened to people in the late 2010s. Uh, You know, there was no, and there was tons and tons of people defending him, particularly from DeSantis world. And like Matt Gates defended him. Uh, that would have been unheard of for what he had been saying in just a few years ago. Um, Richard Nadia, which a lot of people aren't fans of, you know, he is really putting uh, his most devout Hanadiacs to uh, a test. He's really testing the resolve now. But even he, you know, he had the same writings as me, or similar level writings of me, similar associate, same association, same wrong places he wasn't supposed to write for. And he had a book with a major publisher, and they didn't cancel it. And that was a that's a huge deal. Uh, there's been some other people uh, that are, and there's been other cases of this as well, where they've found like secret racist history of other people throughout 2023, and it didn't work. Like conservatives are like, uh, this is fake news, and they just move on. Well, if this had happened in 2018, these people would have been. Uh, condemned by everyone they've been called evil monsters like the uh the daily caller with me and my time but that was just like a different era you know that was a time where conservatives were more worried about this stuff so even though that's like a narrow part of the culture which is conservative media and political media even that's exhibiting traits that cancel culture and wokeness are no longer as effective now that's a little bit different from say with the nfl or advertising on your network tv on your tv network are doing you know it's a little bit different but that is still a sign of something and even within the political sphere there doesn't seem to be as much outrage over trump as there was when he was actually president I remember when he was president, everything was like the end of the world for Trump, no matter what he had said. You know, when he had made the shithole countries comment, you know, people were acting like, you know, this is an impeachable offense. Now he talks about poisoning the blood, uh, you know, migrants poisoning the blood of the country. And people are like, oh, well, you know, it's just Trump. And even Trump related was the, uh, the difference in public sentiment around the Kavanaugh confirmation hearing versus Trump's legal problems, uh, Trump's, you know, trials. Trump's trials are a, a, a bigger deal than Kavanaugh's confirmation hearing. Confir- Kavanaugh's confirmation hearing was a big deal, but this is more important. This is the first time a former president's been on trial, and there's four different trials. There's also the civil cases against him, uh, which he recently lost, and all this stuff. And this is, this is a major, major deal in the history of America. And 
the sentiment around it is just kind of a shrug, which is probably more good for Trump. Like I've criticized it sometimes that conservatives got more worked up about Bud Light than they did Donald Trump's persecution, which, you know, I still stand by because like the type of out anger and outrage over the Bud Light cans is far more than at any time are or anything that had happened with Trump's legal problems. But I think Trump's legal problems have stayed more of a news story longer time. And it's obviously because it's far more important. But compared to the Kavanaugh time, the Kavanaugh hearing, liberals were in really, really worked up about this. And this was, you know, and these were obviously false rape accusations that had occurred to Kavanaugh. But you had every mainstream media outlet calling this guy a rapist. And you had liberals storming the hall, the Washington, you know, they were storming the Capitol. They were doing these ridiculous protests right outside the Supreme Court. And they were, you know, harassing and, and yelling at, at lawmakers who were involved. And it was a real, real expression of how politically polarized and politically and hyper-politicized America was at the time. That this was a matter of intense importance to people. And it was an important story, but if you compare that to how people are just relatively apathetic to Trump's trials, at least compared to whatever happened during Trump, the Trump presidency, because as I said, like Trump could eat two scoops of ice cream and that would be like the end of civilization under when he was president. But now when he's faced with being the first president to ever be convicted and sent to jail... You know, it's just like, oh, well, <laughs> and I think this is mostly a good thing for Trump's election chances because uh, the diminishment of Trump derangement syndrome, you know, indicates that a lot of, you know, independents and people on the fence may just say, well, he's better than the cadaver we have in the White House. You know, he'll solve the border issue. I'm going to vote for Trump. So I think that just indicates that why there's this reduction in wokeness or this tamping down of wokeness now to say this is because i want to differentiate from academic agent and more support because i've been giving a lot of good arguments for academic agent but i'm going to go more to r.i mcintyre side where a lot of the fundamental aspects the structural aspects of wokeness are still there a lot of the dei structures are still there a lot of the racial quotas and hiring are still there. You know, in universities, they're getting changed. Another thing that is actually, a, you could say, is a sign in favor of academic agent is that a lot of universities are returning back to standardized testing. Because, you know, Yale, MIT, I think Dartmouth was, you know, the elite colleges. A lot of elite colleges eliminated because they wanted to have more diverse student bodies. But then they realized, like, oh, shit. Like we're wedding in, we're letting in a lot of people who shouldn't be here. So we need to bring back the standardized testing. And that's a kind of a sign that the, the wokeness is being pushed back. And also the affirmative action ruling that the Supreme Court issued last year is chipping away at some of this, these structural wokeness. But a lot of that's still there. I mean, as I said, the corporations still celebrate Pride Month. Advertising is still featuring tons of gay couples and interracial couples. You Maybe fewer gay couples than it was in the 2010s. It's hard to tell because now we're so used to it. You know, if you saw this in... I think the first gay couple ad was in either uh, the 24 uh, aired at least in 2013 Super Bowl or 2014 Super Bowl. I think it might have been the 2014 Super Bowl. So this is like 10 years ago. And this is like a major deal. And when you saw this in 2015 or 2016, you were like, 
I can't believe they're showing this. But now after 10 years of seeing this stuff, you're just like, you don't notice it. So it's hard to tell if there's like fewer, but interracial couples, that's like every at. Uh, and you still have, and another sign of that structural wokeness is still there, NFL, despite, you know, the obvious woke stuff not being there, you know, players aren't really wearing these criminals on their helmet who got shot by police, and they're not having a whole, like, we stand with Black Lives Matter videos. They still have in racism in the end zone. And they still play, perform the Black National Anthem at marquee games, like the opening game and the Super Bowl. I think they also do at the championship games. Um, I'd have to double check on that. But definitely at the Super Bowl and the first game of the season. And the military and the government and you know universities and businesses still have this DEI training and all these stuff. And they and a lot of companies still have open openly tout that they have racial quotas that they want to meet. And so they are still... And schools of obviously, you know, school grade school is all throughout the country are still having a lot of woke stuff in their classroom. But the, but the I think the obvious effects that really rile people up, which is mainly marketing stuff they see in media or movies or TV, which is a lot of what the woke backlash was directed against last year in 2022. I mean, Bud Light, the Dylan Mulvaney cans didn't affect your life. They, I mean, they weren't even going to be put at the store. I think you could say that this is like really upsetting if you went to, you know, your local grocery store and you open up to get your cold Bud Light and you see Dylan Mulvaney's face staring at you. Uh, that would be, but that didn't even happen. But that really incensed people. Compare that to DEI training at your job. That affects your life. Or, you know, the racial hiring practices of these companies. That that affects your life. That could uh, that could determine whether you get the job you want or not. And so those are very important issues that directly affect your life. But a lot of what the anti-wokeness or what they're really concerned with is whether, you know, companies are being too excessive and Pride Month or racial stuff. And they're kind of pulling that. Or in music, you know, maybe there's like some really egregious uh, anti-Trump song or something that people don't really like, but it's being played, forced to be played on the radio all the time. So there is some degree of that that's pushing back from wokeness. So uh, the, the structural, or rather the structure of wokeness is still there, but the most obvious aspects of it are the aspects of it that conservatives are most concerned with are being calmed down. And so... You could say that from both uh, perspectives, each side has a point. So it now brings us to the question of why this is happening. Is this the regime saying, telling, you know, Starbucks and Bud Light, you know, hey, we've got, we're going to about to start a war. We need white men back in our armed forces. If we, they see more Dylan Mulvaney content, they're not going to sign up. Uh, I don't really think that's the case. I think it's both. It's one public. The public does not like wokeness. Like the average normie American does not like wokeness. They don't like cancel culture either. And I think it's less of a shift to the right and more about people getting burnt out by politics. And you can even see this in our side. I've, I've talked about this a lot in podcasts about what the differences I see between the dissident right now versus the alt-right or other right-wing formations in the 2010s. 
And I've said this is that there's not the idealism. A lot of it's gone. Our ring's very hollow now. There's a lot of cynicism on our side. There's not a lot of coherence, but it's much more popular. And these ideas are much more prevalent than they ever were. So uh, you have a good, you know, you have good things and you have a, and you have some bad things that are going along with this. But it's not just the right where this is happening. This is also happening on the far left. The far left is also burnt out and cynical because look at what's happened. You know, Bernie lost by a lot. They've had their representative leader as Joe, Joe Biden. They also don't have a replacement leader for Bernie emerging. You know, they're all really disenchanted with AOC. They see a lot of the far left or more progressive lawmakers as not as inspiring as Bernie Sanders or just like stupid or and really their presence in the party is being minimized. You know, the far left is not doing well in elections. I mean, we have more members of the squad coming up, but, you know, they're targeting Cory Bush now. They're targeting Jamal Bowman. It looks like a lot of these, some of these squad members are going to lose their possibly will lose their seats in primary elections and this coming this coming year. Also, a lot of progressive challengers and progressive candidates in the Democratic primary are losing, are getting really crushed. Uh, you know, they're far behind in the polls. And a lot of this is probably doing, uh, some of this may be, are, to take a step back, I think there's been kind of a push or a greater push for of the left or a little bit more fire in the left's belly over Palestine. But it's, it's not an issue that's helped them to gain more power in the Democratic Party. Instead, it's been more of an issue to help the establishment secure more control over the Democratic Party. Because even while, you know, Democrats, the rank and file Democrats are turning much more, have a much more sympathetic view of Palestine compared to Israel, especially compared to 20 years ago, the establishment isn't going full on with the free Palestine and from the from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free line that a lot of the far left and the left supports there. You know, they are having a criticism of Israel that they wouldn't have had 10 or 20 years ago, but it's not fully pro-Palestinian. And this is why a lot of the Muslim voters are upset with Biden and the Democratic Party. But that's just a sign that the the left isn't really seceding in the way they are. They also see that a lot of the more radical ideas that the far left was pushing have fallen, have lost favor, like defund the police, reparations. Even though they've been pursuing these reparations ideas, they really just kind of have a committee. They propose like some insane number, like five trillion dollars that a state owes. Uh, you know, California had some ridiculous number in the, what the state owes. And Newsom, who had been championing reparations, is like, OK, that's nice. Uh, we're going to table this. <laughs> you know, they're not even very serious about reparations because I think the left is like, oh, this isn't very popular with people and we can't afford this. And we're also getting crushed when it comes to sanctuary cities and the defunding the police. Defunding the police was a was a huge, huge loser for the left. And now, you know, it's not like they've turned into tough on crime, uh, you know, advocates, but they're trying to move away from the Black Lives Matter agenda. You know, Biden and the Democrats proposed this really extreme bill on police and law enforcement in his first year. 
I think it was the George Floyd uh, Justice and Policing Act or something of that sort. And it would have basically crippled law enforcement nationally and increased crime. And they were very supportive of it at first. But they haven't been talking about it since 2021 because they know it's a massive, massive loser for them in elections. So they, they're running away from it. They're like, uh, actually, we don't want to run on this anymore. And so they've kind of moved away from that. And this is like the fart. So they're not getting what they want to police. And also economics. There's not really a, the type of push for socialist economics or social dem democratic economics within the Democratic Party or within mainstream society. So they're very much burnt out. And a lot of them are losing their jobs if they're at, you know, these left wing media outlets. And a lot of them get older and they're just, you know, burnt out. They're very, they're much more cynical and I think depressed than the right is. And a lot of these people were the ones driving it. Now, there's like multiple sectors of it. Like the Chapo people aren't really the ones in control of corporate marketing teams that hire Dylan Mulvaney to promote Bud Light. So there's different sections of it. I mean, you know, there's maybe the Tumblr left, you could call it, or the more kind of obvious woke left. And then there's the Chapo cells. There's those types. But both sides are not really getting what they achieve. And there's also been tremendous losses for the far left. You know, Black Lives Matter as an, organized, as an organized movement was totally discredited due to their waste of money, their corruption, and, you know, having to shut down the organization. And the fact that all these, got, these women involved became millionaires and were doling out tons of money to their friends and family really discredited it as a social movement. There's also been, you know, Ibram X. Kendi got his own um, center at a major university. In fact, it was an anti-racist center at the Boston University. And then it was beset with corruption and misuse of funds and not doing anything. And they've continued to see this with a lot of their changes. And I think a lot of the people who in 2020 and 2021 that they would have taken seriously like Ibram X. Kendi and Robin D'Angelo, now everyone kind of views them as clowns, as people that you shouldn't listen to. And so that's also speaking to the cynicism with the left. But there's also a, a real dissatisfaction with politics and cynicism among just the general population. And this is, can be seen even in the, in the 2024 election. People aren't happy with the choices between Trump and Biden. Now we are, now I'm happy with Trump. And I know most of our audience is, and I know most of the right wing is, but we aren't, we aren't normies. <laughs> we aren't normies. And a lot of normies aren't very happy with Trump, which is whatever. You know, at least some, there is at least some, there is at least enthusiasm for Trump among the right, but there's not a lot of enthusiasm for normies and centrists. It's not quite the fear or terror around Trump that would have been the case in 2016 or when he was president. It's more just a, ah, uh, not another, not another Trump term. But there's also, this, there's zero enthusiasm for Biden, especially on the left. And I think this is also what's driving a lot of the left not being as engaged in politics as it were. Now, a lot of people on the left are still there. A lot of people are very liberal. It's not like liberals are just leaving. I just don't think that they have quite the fire and enthusiasm that they once had because they're all around Biden. Even centrists and establishment libs don't really have the enthusiasm for Biden that they did for Hillary Clinton. Like it's unthinkable for SNL to have a mournful segment for Biden if he loses in 2024, like the segment they had 
when Hillary lost in 2016, where they had Kate McKinnon, who played uh, Hillary Clinton on SNL, do this somber piano uh, recital on this and like saying, we're not giving up this fight. You know, that's like impossible to think for anyone to do that with with Biden. There was enthusiasm for Hillary among young, among awfuls, of course. There, no one's enthused for, for Biden. And I think that's like also a centrist is that a lot of a lot of normies, they just see this as politics now. And instead of being more engaged like they were in the late 2010s and following George Floyd and, and the lockdowns, they're just saying, I'm going to focus on something else. I'm going to focus on FanDuel and video games. And that's what I'm going to that's what I'm that's what I'm going to be about. Politics is just pointless and boring and really upsetting. I'm just going to focus on something else, which in 20, the late 2010s, there was a hyper politicization where these people, you know, this is before a lot of this was before the legalization of sports betting and online sports betting. And they would just like get really their passions would be directed towards this. But now with the legalization of sports betting, uh, the popularity of TikTok, you know, TikTok got really popular near the end of Trump's uh, term. This is like directed uh, people's energies and passions away from politics. And I think that's the best explanation for why the woke is receding. Like, if you want to say that they need white men to sign up for the military, they're doing a horrible job for this. They're not going to get white men to sign up for the military again by not having as many woke films uh, playing at the theater or not having a trans influencer sell beer cans or sell beer. They're not going to work on that. And also, it's speaking more to apathy around this current situation than acceptance or enthusiasm for it. Because I think uh, what's implied by putting the woke away is that as long as they put the woke away, people will like, stand up and salute the regime and say, I'm ready to fight for you and send me to Ukraine. That's not happening. It's more speaking that people are just drifting away from... A, the public square that they're not wanting to be engaged with this stuff at all. They just want to focus on their own personal affairs and their own personal hobbies and just society can, you know, they want to, they want to shut off the rest of society and what's happening. They just want to go into their own little sphere. And that is not a population that's going to sign up for a war. Uh, they could not get America to agree to another war because one, like we have abysmal recruiting. And they're not going to change that in, in the near future. And it's also white men, obviously, are, are disappearing from the services. So that's not going to change. Two, they can't institute a draft. That would be the most unpopular decision because a core feature of America right now is that we, are, we have zero obligations or duties <laughs> to this country. It's all about the rights and privileges there are no duties or obligations that come with citizenship. And if they, if our government started imposing on that, that would really piss people off. A draft would be insanely unpopular in our country. So they can't get us to a war. And it's, and I, I you know, with academic Angel was arguing that there's so much dissatisfaction on the right with the regime that they're having to just say, oh, let's, let's win you back. Let's get you back. But those really politicized elements of the right are just as dissatisfied with the regime. And, you know, returning to Fresh Prince probably won't win them back anyway. Or having, 
you know, uh, a type of non-woke TV show on Netflix or something is not going to win them back. It might make them more entertained or less likely to be too radical, but it's not going to create an acceptance of the regime where they're going to, you know, be convinced to sign up for another Iraq war or something. And it's not really going to win them back to loyalty. I, I don't think... That ship's kind of sailed because there's all these other changes that if you're really hyper-politicized, you're really caring about wokeness, that you're just not going to accept the paradigm, but there's just going to be like, you're just going to shrug your shoulders and what can I do? I think that's also a response of most Americans now is that it's something deep inner feeling that no matter if you're, you know, some DSA type or just a normie who wants Washington to start working again are a far right winger who are a right winger who wants some based revolution. A lot of people are now just like shrugging the shoulders like, what can I do? And I think that's just a part of the attitude of America. So there's pluses to that. I think you don't really have the militant core to really push wokeness. And also with these media layoffs, they they're losing their most valuable asset to push this stuff. Um, but at the same time, I don't think you have as many people who truly believe that they can make that change in the world that they want. And I think that could change. You know, a Trump, a second Trump term could bring about a different feeling towards politics in America. Maybe the wokeness could return. Uh, maybe Trump derangement syndrome could return. I'm more skeptical about this due to just the change, the completely different media environment. You know, you Vice is gone. Uh, and uh, like, if you look at all the big left wing outlets, they're either irrelevant or no longer there. Like Vice, BuzzFeed, BuzzFeed's back to doing listicles. <laughs> you know, they're not doing news anymore. Uh, and then and nobody reads BuzzFeed. Like bringing up BuzzFeed, like that's still around. Uh, HuffPost, no one reads HuffPost anymore. It's still around though. Um, you know, you, you just don't have that type of environment anymore. And also a lot of social media, you know, it's not like Facebook and Zuckerberg are, are based or anything, but, but Zuckerberg's pretty pissed at like how liberals, you know, he did, he helped them win the election in 2020 and they still try to screw him over. So he's, you know, not that eager to turn Facebook into the type of hard left outlet it was during the Trump years. And also they depoliticize what the content on Facebook they made a conscious decision to change the algorithm to de-emphasize politics and news. And that affects a lot of normies. The normies are still, you know, especially boomers are still on Facebook. That's where they get a lot of their news and content. And a lot of it's not being hyped up about this stuff anymore. So in conclusion, a lot of the putting the woke away is due to a lot of the apathy and cynicism of the public. And the public just is not thrilled with wokeness it does not want to go to a to the theater and have a lecture from a kid's movie you know they want they're not going they've accepted gay couples and interracial couples in advertising they're more open to seeing a type of radical message maybe in some ads like the foot washing ad that was aired during the super bowl which was controversial and they're more maybe more open to watching, you know, a TV show with majority divert non-white cast or something. So it's not like a total reaction rejection where they're wanting, you know, the uh, 1950s America back. You know, they do pine for 1990s America, but it's 
they're not going to get it. But so they'll settle for just a newer type of America that's less woke, or a little bit less woke. But at the same time, the really egregious stuff, they don't, they're not going to be happy with. They're not going to tolerate satanic trans kid TV shows. They like the fact that Shane Gillis can make, uh, can host SNL. And they don't really, they don't really like people getting canceled over old stuff. So while the left doesn't really quite have the fire that they did a few years ago, a lot of the structural wokeness is still there and it will stay there unless there is radical changes done by right-wing governance. And so that is something, that is my take on if the wokeness is being put away. Now, we do have a cognitively question that deals with this subject, so I am going to discuss that. So as a reminder, if you want the power to ask me questions or suggest guests and topics, you can sign up for the Convalete option at Highly Respected Substack. And that's at highly-respected.com and also highlyrespected.substack.com will redirect you there as well. And make sure to sign up for the IQ supplements while you're there. And so this comes from the guy we usually like to conclude our podcast with. It's New England Refugee, but he has a question that's pertinent to the subject we just talked about. And New England Refugee asks, he asked about 2016, he asks, Hey, Scott, you were at the caller back in 2016 at this time and plugged in with the D.C. intelligentsia. Do you think that the leftists are more afraid of Trump now or back then? P.S. A 2016 IQ supplement before the election would be amazing. We will probably do an IQ supplement on the 2016 election and what the lead up to that was like. Uh, Do you think the leftists are more afraid of Trump now or back then? Obviously, back then. They are trying to whip up the hysteria. You know, if you go on CNN or or if you watch CNN or MSNBC, they're like, he might be a dictator. But I don't think people, as many people, really believe this stuff. And if you go to writers, if you go to stuff like, you know, Matt Iglesias and Jamel Bowie, these type of liberal writers, you know, they were worried, they were unironically believing that there would be government-sponsored pogroms at that time. There was this great dialogue between Jamel Bowie and Matt Iglesias about what would happen if Trump became president. And this is right before 2016. This is actually October 2016, so just a few weeks before the election. Jamel Bowie tweeted, they deleted this. I have to go back to my old news article I found um, at the Daily Caller which I wrote this. And Jamel Bowie had tweeted, the GOP has brought the country to the edge of fascism and state-sanctioned racial violence and there will be no consequences. And this was him. Um, uh, he, uh, I don't know what the hell he was even talking about. I think it might have been just somebody like pushing someone at a, at a rally. And then Matt Iglesias responded, my guess is that in a Trump administration, angry mobs will beat and murder Jews and people of color with impunity. This is how people legitimately thought the Trump administration would be. And I think today that type of stuff is just everyone thinks that that's just not going to happen. And even at that time... Like people had to push back on this stuff. Like Ross Douthat was also who's a New York Times columnist. Jamel Bowie is now a New York Times columnist. I think both Iglesias and Jamel Bowie were writing at Slate at the time. Douthat had said, "I'm very doubtful that this might happen, but it could happen." Uh, you know, he's implying that it could happen, which is just completely ridiculous. But that's how people were talking about Trump in 2016. You have these, you know. You have the type of center left people go on MSNBC, you know, you have 
Colonel Vidman, you know, the guy who testified against Trump, the Ukrainian guy who testified against Trump in his uh, first impeachment, who's always like, oh, I'm going to be arrested. And it's like pretty much only on MSNBC is this type of hysteria. Most of the real writers understand that there's not going to quite be this way. Like Iglesias wouldn't write this now. They worry that, like, you know, they try to whip up the dictatorship and all that stuff, but it's not really hitting. It's not really, it's ringing hollow because they know that's just not going to happen under Trump. And they, they experienced the first term or it's not even connecting with their audience in the same way that it did in 2016 and throughout Trump's administration. So they were definitely more frightened and they were able to whip up this hysteria when Trump had won and after he had won. They're going to have a lot more trouble this time because as I said in the past conversation, Everyone's cynical. Everyone's burnt. Most people are burnt out of politics, especially on the far left. They're going to have trouble getting like Antifa started again to, you know, disrupt Trump rallies and stuff. You know, Trump isn't having these uh, problems he was in his 2016 rallies. In 2016 rallies, there was a lot of violence at Trump rallies. Not from Trump people, but, you know, there was protesters there. There was Antifa attempts. There was Hispanic, angry Hispanic protests when he had these rallies out in California. You know, there was a Chicago rally that had to be canceled because blacks and white Trump supporters were fighting in the middle of the arena. And those and those were Black Lives Matter activists. Black Lives Matter was still around and was around in 2016. And you just had a lot more of that type of violence. You're just not, I don't think you're going to see that now. And people in media legitimately thought Trump was going to start, you know, arresting and executing journalists. I think now, you know, when they're booed or CNN sucks, they're just like, oh, well, that's just a normal part of Trump. So, no, to the answer to the question is they were definitely much more afraid and much more worked up in 2016 to now. But I, I think the one difference might be is that CNN and MSNBC, the well, more MSNBC may have a more heightened or hysterical reaction to Trump now because they do all these segments. Like I see this stuff at the gym, you know, they'll have like, will Trump be a dictator on day one? Is like, will he end the democracy? And there was a lot of hysteria going up to the 2022 election where they're like, democracy may be over if Republicans win after November. And um, pre 2016, this would have never happened, but in you know, once if you expand this to 2016 and the Trump presidency itself, I would say there's there's less hysteria. So that'd be my answer to New England refugees question. Now we have one more topic I want to discuss. I didn't get a question on this, but I do want to discuss this topic and then I'll go to the other cognitive questions. And that topic is CPAC. CPAC, uh, you know, we're doing a lot of memory lane or remember when topics today, but in comparisons to what political life was like in the 2010s to now. And there's no better example of this than CPAC. CPAC happened last week. I didn't know or I wasn't really cognizant of the fact that it was happening last weekend until the weekend before. <laughs> it, that's how unimportant CPAC has become. It is not as big of a political event as it was 10 years ago, or even really five years ago. One, it's been eclipsed by TPUSA's events, which a lot of these events depend on a lot of young people wanting to go and meeting other young people and partying. 
TPUSA is all young people. It's all college kids. If you're a college kid, which event do you want to go to? One event with a bunch of goofy boomers or an event with a lot of other college kids and a ton of co-ed, a ton of women. You're going to want to go to the TPUSA event. And I think that's that, that if they only have one event to pick, they're going to go to TPUSA. And TPUSA has a much greater control over conservative youth movements and groups now than they did just a few, you know, a few years ago. I mean, when I was in college, TPUSA wasn't even a thing. I'm older than Charlie Kirk. Eh, that might surprise some people. Might not surprise others. They're like, aren't you like 10 years older than Kirk? Aren't you in your 40s? I am not in my 40s. I'm not even close to my 40s yet, but some people accuse me of that. Um, when I was there in his early 2010s in college, you know, there was a lot of different youth groups, and they weren't really united. The bigger youth organization at that time, the two that were most involved with it was Young America's Foundation, which used to be Young Americans for Freedom, which had been around since the 60s. Uh, Buckley had been a part of it. It had been a big uh, conservative group for years. It's really became more of a daily wire thing in the late 2010s you know when the Groper war was happening you know there was the tpusa events with kirk and then there was the yaf events with ben shapiro and matt walsh i it's not really that much of a thing anymore uh it pretty much shuttered like uh, i think they still bring speakers out but it's really not that important they thought they could challenge tpusa at that time, there was a lot of people wanting to challenge TPUSA during the Great Wars. Well, people were, but the thing is, is that TPUSA then embraced all the things they were getting criticized for. They embraced a lot of the Graper stuff and America First stuff, and now they're like the dominant conservative youth group force in America. Very, and they're completely different from what they were like uh, when the Great Wars started uh, nearly five years ago. Now, time flies by when you're being keyed. Uh, so, YAF isn't really much of a thing anymore. Then there's the Leadership Institute, which Leadership Institute still does stuff with TPUSA. And that's what I came up through was Leadership Institute uh, because they were, uh, they were the, uh, bo- the parent body of youth, uh, youth for Western Civilization, which is how I got my political start. Youth for Western Civilization was, of course, condemned as a racist hate group. It's not been around for 12 years, I think. I think it got shuttered in 2012. So it's not been a thing for a long time. and But that's what I came up with and through Leadership Institute. And that's where I got my start was through Leadership Institute by being an intern at Campus Reform. Campus Reform is still there. Still gets, uh, well, drudge hits aren't as big of a thing. But they still get their stories cited by Fox News uh, now. So but that's really just Leadership Institute. It's not as much of a dominant force. But Leadership Institute and YAF both built their whole like you know their main event was CPAC and they were always trying to invite kids there all throughout the all throughout the country to get a lot of youth groups there and also college republican groups all throughout the country would send people there uh now I don't think they get as much of a youth presence because TPSA events are seen as a bigger deal and so CPAC is now even older crowd than it was when I was going, I mean, there was always boomers there. It was about half boomers, half like college kids, maybe 60, 40 boomers. I think now it's overwhelmingly boomers and not as much young people as it would have been uh, in years past. But it's not just as relevant either because of the TPUSA effect. But CPAC is also very, very different. CPAC, 
for years was criticized by the citizen right for not addressing the real issues. Every year, you know, VDARE would always run articles about how they don't have a uh, uh, they don't have any speakers addressing immigration. I remember in 2013, they had like one immigration panel, and they were all advocating for amnesty. <laughs> so that was like the CPAC then. And later on in the 2010s, they were also banning any wrong thinkers. You know, so many people were kicked out and not allowed in. You know, people like Nick, you know, Fuentes wouldn't have been allowed in. Jared Taylor wouldn't have been allowed in. But now they allow, I don't know if they'd allow Nick in because Nick is such a recognizable person and they would probably usher him out. But Jared Taylor was there, and he was been. He was also went to the 2022 one as well, and wrote a report on it, which he wasn't um, very optimistic about what he saw at that CPAC. I would be interested to see if he writes something about the CPAC he just attended. Hopefully, he does. I would like to read it. I liked his article in the 2022 CPAC, but he. Uh, so that's like a difference, is that they're now. Not really kicking people out, which in 2019, 2020, this was like their main obsession was to kick out any person who was too far right. And they would just kick out. I think even like someone like Communism Kills, uh, which I don't know if people remember her. I don't think she I think she was kicked out of CPAC. I think Cassandra Fairbanks are. Yeah, Cassandra McDonald. I think she goes by her um, name, but Cassandra Fairbanks was kicked out, I think, at one CPAC. So they had all these people. Don't quote me on that one, but I think someone like that, they were always trying to ban people like that from CPAC. But now they just let people in. And there was a, a funny news article NBC post, posted about these neo-Nazis at CPAC, which the neo-Nazis, they pointed out, were guys who were actually calling themselves national socialists. Uh, it was like people... Um, um, like who had, I think Greg Conti was a part of the crew, but these guys were there and they're giving Hitler salutes. And it's like, well, it's kind of hard to defeat this accusation <laughs> if you're going around saying you're a national socialist and giving a Roman salute. But I guess that's what people want. Uh, those guys were, you know, not shunted aside. They were kind of allowed. And so there's much, it's a much different atmosphere and vibe, but it's not as big of an, as of an event as it was. It would have been the dominant event for the right in the 2010s and now it's secondary to turning point usa and so that's a bit of a difference that you're seeing now and but the content of the conference is extremely pro-trump which in 2016 it was anti-trump you know trump didn't show up at cpac and people were booing you know the name of trump when he was there and they're you know it's like oh the fact that cpac is revolting against trump proves that he's not going to win the primary which obviously still won the primary now it's you know another trump event and organized conservatism is trump's party there isn't a real expression of anti-trumpism outside of conservative commentary and outside of Twitter that's organized in any way. CPAC is entirely pro-Trump. Turning Point USA is entirely pro-Trump. The GOP itself is entirely pro-Trump, even though Mitch McConnell and other leaders will bitch about Trump in private. You know, the party itself has to serve Trump. It is entirely Trump's movement and Trump's party, which CPAC reveals. So that is another major change that's happened. So that's a that's just an interesting aside I wanted to say is that how important it was compared to a few years ago. Like I would have known about CPAC, 
you know, long in advance. And I would have even tried to been around that area for that time. There wasn't really anything to go to this year. And I mean, it's definitely much more pro Trump. I mean, Steve Bannon had a whole big panel there and stuff. And there have been years where he wouldn't have been allowed to, or they would have tried not to have Steve Bannon. But now a lot of the people who were criticizing CPAC in the early 2010s or wouldn't have been allowed or the people who have been criticizing CPAC in the early 2010s now run the show. A lot of them run the show and people who would have not been allowed at CPAC three years ago are now allowed in without anyone caring. So it's a big change in the right. I guess in some ways the cancel culture and the great purge on the right that dominated the late 2010s is seriously gone. I have to, I probably should do an article or a podcast, an IQ supplement on the great purge of the late 2010s and that mindset that followed Trump's election victory and how conservatism operated and how it changed from this almost you know secret police style where we're having to root out people who may like a Richard Spencer tweet, which at that time, that's what people would have liked in like 2017, or falling too many anons or stuff, that they would have rooted them out of conservative organizations and conservative outlets and and banned anyone from hanging out with them and, and, and attacking them to now all conservative commentators talking about the Great Replacement and sounding like an alt-right podcast from 2016. <laughs> so... I, I should do a change on that on how that occurred. That's a topic for another day. So we even see a little bit of that in CPAC's development. So that is it for all the non-cognitively questions. We're now going to get to the rest of them. And as a reminder, a second reminder, you too can get the power to ask me questions or suggest guests and topics if you sign up for the Cognitively option at highly respected subsect. And that's at highly-respected.com. And make sure to sign up for the IQ summits while you're there. I have two questions that are kind of deal with what I just talked about. One comes from Mystery, so we'll start off with Mystery. Mystery asks, in the long time you've been following the right wing and politics in general, what turn of events has most surprised you or run contrary to your expectations? For example, I was convinced that Biden's election in 2020 was going to lead to an increase in woke repression, censorship, etc. after the COVID and Floyd hysteria. Instead, it's 2024. Trump is the front runner, and Elon and Charlie Kirk, of all people, is calling out the Jews for anti-white racism. Hugely unexpected. Uh, that is true. I would probably say... Well, I would probably have to agree with the Elon and Charlie Kirk. The, the Charlie Kirk-based arc. Uh... There's a lot there. The Charlie Kirk based arc, because that's illustrative of what's happening in the right in general, is that Charlie Kirk was, just a few years ago, talking about how awesome MLK is. Now he's doing podcasts and episodes on how MLK was a communist and a terrible person for America. And he's, like I said, you know, sounding like, an alt-right podcaster from 2016. So is the Tucker Carl so is Tucker Carlson at time. The Tucker Carlson Candace Owens interview sounded like it was like you just turned on the right stuff from uh, like in uh, summer of 2016 when they were had their discussion in the last fall. So that is an unexpected turn. Um there's a lot of other things that are unexpected, but I'll go on this theme because this is something you shared and and this does have my way of thinking in 2021. When 
J6 happened and I saw the backlash against it from all quarters, from the right, center, obviously from the left. I thought that there was going to be this real push to rewind back to 2014. Is that what people wanted to go for? Even like Biden's campaign was all about like you can if you select me for president we can rewind this all the way back to 2014 we can wipe out the memory of trump everything can just return to normal again and there's even right wingers who are wanting to return back to 2014 you know a lot of wignats were like oh we need to trump was the worst thing that ever happened to us because like no one was following this stuff before and they're like we need to turn back to 2014 so everyone thought that would happen and I thought the GOP would go back to its business first ways and, you know, just talk about tax cuts and the debt and they'd, you know, shove Trump aside. But that completely didn't happen. The opposite, as you said, the opposite happened is that the the party and conservatism is far more Trumpian than it was even in 2019 and 2020 when he was president. It, it, it reflects his cultural, his style his politics, his rhetoric, way more than at any time when he was ever president. And that's something unexpected. And then people are advancing this to an extent that we would have never thought possible. Like the red pilling of Charlie Kirk and what Charlie Kirk now talks about is completely would have been completely unthought of in years ago. Like this guy talks about the Great Replacement, anti-white racism, and even the Greerhead Pledge in a lot of ways. And so our rhetoric that we had in 2017 and 2016 is now the mainstream. And even when we thought, and some people still argue this, they still think that like, oh, our peak was like in 2017. It was not. I just think as an organized movement, which how it ended and how it was operating was completely stupid at that point. But the movement itself has been crushed. I mean, the remnants of the alt-right are not, not in good shape at all. But its ideas and its rhetoric and a lot of the, even in some of its style, is now far more popular than ever at any point. Far more popular than 2016 and 2017 when you know Hillary Clinton and the entire mainstream media is talking about this stuff and railing against them. It is much bigger deal. So I would say that that's an unexpected event, but there's always a lot of unexpected events. You know, even Trump running and becoming president was the most unexpected event in the first time part of my political our involvement in politics. I would have never thought that. I would have never thought that that was going to be the way that our politics would be shaped by this guy who's a really reality TV star, you know, a loudmouth billionaire becomes then the hero of middle America and begins advocating for a lot of our ideas and popularizes a lot of the ideas that I've been writing about for years. Or well, not years at that point, but I've been writing about for a few years. And then he did that. And that was and then the fact he won. I was like, I how did this happen? And so there's so many unexpected events that can occur. So there's a long-term trends you can, you know, you can pinpoint and are gonna continue. Like, you know, whites becoming a minority in America. Um, that's likely that's probably going to be the case. <laughs> I guess I have to give a black pill for that. It's not quite a black pill because I mean it's just happening, but I don't think that it's the end of political power or, or the end of us being able to make America great again. It's just a fact that we have to deal with. So there's something like that. But when it comes to politics and political trends, 
something can upend it that we would have never thought of. You know, most people thought that Trump was done after J6. They're like, this guy is going to jail. I think even the Senate's going to vote to remove him from office. Like, he is done. And now he's ahead of Biden in the general election polls. And even though he's like, you know, charged with a number of crimes, this isn't hurting him. And that's even something unexpected. Like, I thought that some of his legal problems may, you know, hinder him a little bit. But it, it in some ways just didn't hurt him at all. And maybe that might be, and so we may be in for another turn of unexpected events. Maybe the, maybe he gets convicted and he still wins. You know, he maybe even wins the popular vote. There's a lot of wild things that can happen in politics. And so it's always to keep, there's, it's always good to keep in mind that like things aren't always set in stone is that you can just have some surprise that you would have never thought of happening at one point. And then a Charlie Kirk is, uh, calling uh mlk an anti-white racism you know or anti-white racist just crazy things can happen like that so i would i would give that would be my answer to that but there's a lot of other things that have happened to that are just something i would have never thought of but even going along with this this is something uh about expectations that could happen and this one's from Friendly Graper. He asked, do you think that support for Israel among the right is here to stay for the foreseeable future or that as the dissident right continues to influence mainstream conservatism, it will start to diminish? It depends on what you say the foreseeable future is. If you say for the rest of the decade, yes, it's it's uh, the kind of fanatical support for Israel is going to be here to stay. Yes, there's a lot of young people who are now becoming more anti-Israel. Um, a lot of it's due to, you know, obviously there's, been commentators like Fuentes who have been very anti-Israel for a long time. There's also more mainstream commentators like Matt Walsh, uh, Charlie Kirk is even at times. He goes back and forth, uh, Charlie Kirk. But Tucker Carlson, you know, this stuff's becoming more out there for a commentary. But it's not reflected among the core base of right wing in America, which is Gen Xers and Boomers. They're still fanatically pro-Israel. And even what you could see on the political side is that the only person, the only two people on elected Republicans who are willing to stand against Israel are Thomas Massey and to a lesser extent, Rand Paul. No one else is. And Massey is, you know, he's been primaried every time he runs, but he might lose his election over that and his criticism of Trump. If you lose Massey, then the pretty much it's just Rand Paul, and Rand Paul doesn't like to emphasize it as much as Massey does, or doesn't try to go as hard on this as Massey. So you would have a universal like stance among Republicans on Israel, which is completely different from the left. Among the left, first there's a young people are a much bigger part of the left than for the right, and they are all anti-Israel. The right, it's a little bit more divided among young people. There's a lot more young people who are critical and skeptical of Israel than there were in, you know, 2015. But at the same time, they're they're not as big a part of that coalition or that constituency for the right-wing constituency. We're much more of an older crowd. But with the left, the young people are all universally anti-Israel. And all the staffers and junior, and people who are working in the White House, State Department, and on Capitol Hill are very anti-Israel. And this is why this is such a contentious issue for the party. And a lot of the important parts of their coalition aren't very thrilled with Israel. There's a lot of black leaders now who are turning against Israel. 
obviously the Muslim community is growing bigger and much more important part of democratic voting, especially with their huge presence in Michigan. They're very anti-Israel. And so you have a that big you have a change on the left, which I talked about, you know, earlier in the podcast, which it's not going full on free Palestine and from the river to the sea. They're trying to, you know, suppress that. But at the same time, there's more of a willingness to criticize Israel and its actions on the left because that reflects the opinion of their base much more than it does with the right. And there's also the donor question. With the, with the left, I think the one, uh, one reason why they haven't gone full like pro-Israel or, or, not an, or anti-Israel is because of the donor question. And there's a some of their older you know, voters are more pro-Israel. And that's, so they're just trying to keep the coalition together. With the right, the donors are entirely are extremely pro-Israel. There's not really, you know, there's not, it's hard to say for Republicans who they would win over by taking an, a different position on them like that. They would definitely, you know, it definitely thrill a lot of their younger voters. But as I said, that's not a that's the younger voters have a different position on this versus the majority of their voters. And there's all these donors who they and there's even potential donors that they're trying to win over. So guys like Bill Ackman and all these uh, liberal Jewish donors who are now upset at campus anti-Semitism and Biden not showing enough support for for Israel, who are now open to supporting Republican candidates. And that's driving some of the increased zealotry for Israel on the right. So this could change. Now this this is not set in stone as I as I just said in the previous topic. But I think for the rest of the decade yeah, uh, the so p- among the formal American right, you're going to see still these Republican politicians saying like I stand with Israel and acting like Israel is the 51st state. But among the younger crowd, I think it's going to change. And maybe in 10 years, you will see more Republican politicians, elected lawmakers who are critical of Israel. But you're going to have to wait a while. And after 2024, the party might even be more pro-Israel than at any point in history if Massey gets uh, loses his election. So, yeah, but the commentariat is, I think, more open to Israel skepticism and criticism than they would have been in years past. And conservative media does have an influence, uh, but it's more the online media portion. Like talk radio and Fox News are still like, you know, saluting Netanyahu, while the online media, which reaches younger people, is more, you know, skeptical. So there's that divide. But, you know, the changes can happen progressively. So, and you never know. Maybe maybe things could change, but I would have to, you're gonna to have to wait till the 2030s for a major change, in my opinion. Now we're gonna go on to K Max's questions. K Max has always got a lot of questions, and he's bringing up a important question. I would have made possibly have made a topic, but I knew he asked this question. He asks Scott with Google's new AI tool Gemini. George Washington and the Founding Fathers became black, and searching for happy white women and men became all black male, white female images. Was there just an anti or woke anti wet revolution at google or were they or were they always this way elon musk even tweeted about this and a user said how do we end up with where all of big tech is insane and as anti-white as sharpton will another search engine ever rival google i would say google is the biggest and worst anti-white company right now 
and he talks about Elon's uh, tweet. Were they always this bad? Yeah. I mean, the uh, James Moore, I think James was his first name, who warned about Google's wokeness or its ideological uh, orthodoxy, left-wing orthodoxy. He did that whole big letter and uh, whistleblowing in 2017. The unfortunate fact is that he did this right before Charlottesville. <laughs> <laughs> and so it didn't really, uh, it was uh, not the best timing for him, but it was like a huge news story when uh, Demore came out against Google. And then they all try to associate Demore with um, the alt-right because they were like, well, this guy is an alt-right guy. And he, he was not. He was just a goofy altist. And he's warning about this stuff there. Uh, it's definitely, it goes to this point where I think the wokeness is getting pushed back because everyone was upset about this. No, hardly anyone was defending this. This was wokeness jumping the shark. Because if it's, you know, the real funny moment, which the media did get mad about, and maybe the media got too mad about this, they fixated on, you know, they're fine with portraying the founding fathers as black or European scientists as Indian women. But when they showed all German soldiers from World War II as non-white, that's when they're like, this is outrageous. But it just showed how ridiculous it is. And there is the white pill from this is how much public rejection there is to this. They've been doing manipulating this stuff for years. I mean, I remember people doing this like 2018. They're like, search for European inventors or something, or American inventors. And they would only show all non-whites. They would not show a white guy. And they've been always doing that with images and news, and they've manipulated their news to ensure that conservative media and conservative news isn't seen. The, the, they've always been doing this with the algorithm. This is just like the peak of it, the peak ridiculous of it. And this is to, to a point where even liberals are like, this is just stupid. And that's how, and how did you end up like this? Is that like, this is what tech program. This is what a lot of tech programmers are like. They're they're fully on woke and insane. It's like a lot of you know a lot of them are trans. A lot of them are like really avid Black Lives Matter people. I mean, very few of them are black, of course, but you know they're the ones who are very aggressive leftists. You also have like some strong right wingers in the tech world as well. I feel like in the tech world, you're either like an extreme right winger or extreme left winger. There's like very little uh, in the middle, except for the executives. But Google is definitely the worst of these tech companies. YouTube is still very censorious, while Facebook, obviously Twitter, are moving towards you know allowing more free speech or just not wanting to be total left-wing outlets. Google is still insisting on this, and Google Gemini is the perfect example of this. But YouTube is just censoring and suppressing people while the rest of these social media platforms are moving in a more... Uh, less censorship model, but Google is still there. And so I totally agree that they're the biggest and worst left-wing company, definitely anti-white. And they really are pushing this stuff more than any, and they're the most powerful tech company, arguably the most powerful tech company there is. I mean, everyone uses Google. Everyone uses them as their search engine. And well, and I don't think that another search engine will ever rival Google. But as I feel the rest of the industry is moving in a different direction, Google will be on the outs and will have to catch up with what public sentiment is. Public sentiment was not excited for Google Gemini. Public sentiment is overwhelmingly opposed to this. You know, from the New York Times to Breitbart, everyone is criticizing the, Google, the AI tool. Uh, 
Some would have just said, like, oh, maybe the rights may be a bit too big about it. But the, the German soldiers one was just a thing too far. And there is, like, an understanding that this is completely historically inaccurate. So I would say that this the public reaction towards it is more of a white pill and and as a part of that there is a degree of putting the wokeness away is that there is limits to how much the public will take with woke shit that they have to put that they have to deal with and we are seeing that limit hit with gemini and the public backlash against it It is a little bit of a bud light moment but i don't think people are going to boycott google because you know people have their email they youtube is the preeminent video platform even though there's like some alternatives that can help out uh, content creators who get banned it's still like the number one platform so there is that um and it is the worst it is the worst tech company probably due to how powerful it is he has another tech question to follow up he said scott with microsoft openly say we'll pay our white employees less than our non-white ones is it dawning on even the most ignorant of white people as long as they are under age 45 what is happening i thought it was not even legal to pay less based on race but microsoft is doing it now was there a new legal decision or are they just breaking the law how hard is it to convince normies now with data like this normie republicans and even some normie democrats no people get outraged by this stuff i and it's not I, it's I, it would not hold up in court i have to give you that white pill any time that they do this anti, like flagrantly anti-white rate, um, discrimination with the discriminate with you know racial quotas and stuff, they generally pull back from it and they lose in court. No, they're they're likely they're most likely breaking the law, and if they were taken to court, they would lose. So I want to give you that white pill, but I think it's definitely it's definitely an extreme measure that I think if people get real are aware of it affects their daily lives the thing is about this stuff is it doesn't agitate people or doesn't inspire the type of heated public discourse that google gemini's ai images or bud light does this is the real meat of wokeness and structural wokeness that we're seeing and mo a ton of companies are doing this you know the fact is is that among fortune 500 companies 93% of who they hired since the Floyd revolution have been non-white males. That's a big deal. It sounds like some discrimination is going on. But that is what's happening. And that's really what's affecting people in their daily lives and their ability to succeed in America. And is a part of that structural wokeness that is not going away. Now you can chip at it and tackle it with aggressive litigation especially from the federal government i mean if you trump got into office again he could utilize the doj to really attack these companies and to really change this and even without that you can still have lawfare um not coming from the federal government to change these laws but this stuff is very much built in and i don't think and people are actually generally bothered by this because this does affect them on a daily on their daily lives i just don't think it gets that they become as aware of it as they do with the uh, sexier issues of I don't, I don't want to use the word actually sexy with with uh, bud light's decision but more um, outrageous type things like imagining that bud light now has a trans influencer on all their beer products or that google gemini will show nazis as black women you know this type of stuff is just much more 
aggravating to people and it'll generate more content. But this stuff is much more is more important and is much more of that type of stuff we have to remove and it's not being put away and they're not trying to put this away this is built into the system they have their patronage networks and it's even with the universities is that a lot of reason they don't want to eliminate dei is because blacks insist on it and this is a patronage network for them and to eliminate that would be seen as anti-black and that's why all these universities are you know rallying around circling the wagons in favor of dei even though of the many controversies and scandals that are happening with DEI. But the good news is people are care, are starting to care about this stuff. Uh, so the KMAX's last question. Uh, Scott, in discussing the left's cultural power, ran across the positions they dominate. Most teachers are left-wing, lawyers, tech entrepreneurs, and it seems even doctors and businessmen. What feels does the right-wing dominate? It seems the issue that they are important... Uh, is that they are important blue-collar jobs like cops, truck drivers, and loggers, but these professions have zero political power. Ah, cops... Police unions have a lot have a, have a significant degree of political power, but a lot of others are. I don't think loggers are have that much. Is this the biggest problem, and do you feel that this can be reclaimed? I feel like the right just gave up all these jobs or were forced out of them. Your view? No, it's a huge problem. And uh, I got into argument this morning over this with people because once again, everyone's going like, "Oh, college is a scam." Just because going to the trades, it's you know a never-ending discussion on this topic. On what it is. And I, I started this off because conservatives cannot imagine another job besides the trades. They they refuse to imagine that there's any jobs outside the trades. And I had this, um, there was a Fox Business host um, who tweeted out that saying, you know, AI is going to take a lot of these coding jobs. So now people can pursue their dream jobs. And what a conservatives recommend, obviously, they recommended plumbing in the trades. They can't imagine anyone as those any dream job besides that. And simply just pointing this out always, always incites anger among people. As they're like, you hate tradesmen. You hate blue collar jobs. You're deeply insecure about this. It's like, I don't think anyone's deeply insecure about it. It's not like uh, I dreamt of being an HVAC repairman, but then they're like, show hands. And they're like, you soft hands bugmen would never make an HVAC repairman. And then that was like my origin story. It's like I, you know, put my head down. I was like, oh, I'm going to get back at these HVAC repairmen. And I then took on my... Uh, war against my crusade against uh the trades no that's not like it's just everyone knows that these people are necessary and you can't make a decent income from this but the the main problem we have is that we're losing prominent positions is that we're you know elite universities it's like only five percent of students are conservative at elite universities and these are the people who can be running our country and making decisions. You know, plumbers don't make decisions. They can make a good income. They can make that. And not everyone is going to be in a prominent position. I mean, there's some people who, you know, that may be what they want to do. And maybe those aptitudes are for that. But it's a, it's a, a, a one-size solution for everyone is that we're just going to do this. And it it if you want to know why there's so much institutional capital, capture if there's so much cultural power on the left you can look at this and this also creates problems as like somebody pointed this out in my replies is like you know we we have trouble staffing republican administrations because we don't have enough base people or key people to serve in these jobs or are capable of serving these jobs like they're not going to make you know a guy running his own hvac company you know secretary of state all right 
you're gonna have to. It's unfortunately gonna be a soft hands, college-educated bugman who's probably gonna do that. It's not even sure what cultural and institutional power the tradesmen are having. I mean, it's simply if you want a decent income, where depending on where you live, you can you know, have an okay life. It's fine. It's you know, there's some other things that come up. There's other problems with it. I mean, there's a lot more injuries. Uh, I've talked to people who are blue collar jobs, and, and some of them aren't very happy with their lives. <laughs> I mean, there could be the same with all of this drones. It just depends on your situation and what you want to do and how you envision your life. And people can do many different things. But a huge problem with the right is that we don't have enough people competing with the elites for these positions that actually make uh, the decisions and actually rule our country. And not everyone's cut out for this. And it's not like we're going to create a million, you know, uh, Supreme Court lawyer justices and lawyers arguing before the Supreme Court. But you do need to have those people. And I think encouraging the smart young people who are actually reading this stuff, which all these people are like, this message is not for uh, the smart people. This is for the dumb people. It's like, who is following along to political content as a 17-year-old? It is not the idiots who hate reading. It is the guys who are generally more bookish who are reading who probably have the aptitude to, to go to college. And you're simply telling them, and it's also every person who gives this advice is a, is a college grad who does not work a trades job. This has to be made clear is that the majority of people who, who advise this do not experience these jobs firsthand and do not do these jobs. And they get very sensitive when they are told that like, oh, well, you know, you wouldn't understand this or... That's just what you do. And it's like, actually, uh, I'm a college grad from an elite state school and I went to, uh, on a scholarship. Uh, because even then, they don't want to have the impression that they're an idiot, that they're too stupid to go to college. They want to emphasize that they are actually were a brilliant college grad and actually had a lot of success. But uh, don't follow their path to success. Just become a plumber. But when you see the demographics are the left-weaning orientation of all these people who have power and influence in our society and make the decisions, you begin to wonder if it's actually good advice. And I always say that it's better to emphasize like going to college be when you're a political commentator because the kids who are listening into us are not the type of kids that shouldn't be going to college or should be going to a trade school. Those are the kids that probably have, are more likely to have the aptitude to go to college. And we're giving them the absolute wrong message. We're instead telling these smart kids to do something, you know, do something that maybe they're not best at or that they could be much better at something else. There's so few kids that are like actually intellectually curious and like to read. And more of those kids are probably into politics or, than their peers. Now, there's like a lot of people who should go to trade school. I would say this. At my college, at least half the people probably should have gone to trade school or not gone to college at my school. You know, there's some schools that you could downsize. We should do a better job of educating uh, kids that maybe they shouldn't go to school. But the real issue is guess who's hearing this message the most? White males. White males are falling behind in college or in college attendance, uh, proportionally to their part to their share of the population, whites males are the most underrepresented population in college, and that trend is continuing. And most of them are not doing anything. It's not like they're well; they're doing what conservatives imagine that they're 
becoming an electrician. Now they're making six figures and they've got a wonderful family and it's now 1955 and their household and stuff. No, they're just like working at a fast food restaurant and playing video games all day. You know, they're not starting a family. They don't have the income or the wherewithal to actually start a family or make a success. They're just falling behind entirely. And our message to them is to absolutely don't go to college. Do not do something else. And then they're locked in. So there's also other problems too with like choosing the non-college and then choosing a career path is that Oilfield Rando, who has some okay tweets, I don't want to hate on him too much, but he's definitely a um, uh, big on the uh, become a plumber line. He had a tweet where it's like where Mark Cuban was responding. He's like, actually, it's better for kids to you know go to college cheap to figure out maybe they can just go to a year to community college or to a very affordable state school to figure out what they want to do. And maybe they college isn't right for them, but they didn't spend that much money on it. And, you know, they can go figure it out. And when you're 18, 19, 20, you have that ability. But the when you lock into a job at 18 and that becomes your career and then you begin to settle down your life, you maybe buy a home, you maybe start a family. You can't change that. You are locked into that. Now, for some people, that may be fine. But others, they may, you know, become, you might be 24 or so and then like, I'm not really happy with what I'm doing in life. And then maybe they feel that like life has already passed them by at 24. I know some people um, who've talked, you know, that they've been making very good money doing a blue collar job, but they feel locked into it. And, you know, they have now like they own a home and it's very difficult for them to just switch to something or go to school. Once you become to locked into these responsibilities of a family and a mortgage and like things you have to pay for, you just can't switch. You have to stay at that job to you know feed your family and to pay and keep a and to keep a roof over your head. And a lot of conservatives are just telling people to lock down into this stuff, and then they assume that at some point in time they're going to become a revolutionary who can overthrow the government or something. I don't know what the I don't know what the I, I don't think anybody really knows what the plan is. So that's also something you have to consider. So I don't, I don't really like telling, I'm very much opposed to this, telling our audience to go to trade schools. We are not the people who, the, uh, let me rephrase this. We are not, the people who should be going to trade school the, and high schoolers and college is not cut out for them. They are not the people listening to us. The, the young kids who are listening to us are the ones who are more, Skilled are more, college is more their thing. And we are giving them very bad advice. Because you can still, you know, it's not like the options are become a plumber or be lip-tarded and have 150K in student loan debt. You can go to college for affordable rate. You can go to state school on a scholarship or a semi-scholarship. And, you know, you can figure out what you want to do there. And even a lot of people, like they complain about their office jobs, a lot of people are some, especially when you get older, prefer the office job over, you know, the blue collar job. You know, you're not going to get injured. You're not going to face injury in an office. Some people would prefer, you know, still that blue collar job. Others wouldn't. But as you get older, people are, if you talk to anybody who actually works blue collar jobs, you know, they get, they get more bothered by this stuff and their, their body can't take those jobs as much as they could when they were younger. 
But back to KMAX's question, you know, the only hope we can have to make effective change is if we win over enough of these elite types. Um, and we have enough people in these positions to actually have the ability to make these changes. And if we don't, we're going to continue to have total left-wing institutional capture, and then we're going to have structural wokeness till the end of time, or until America's over. And starting up your own plumbing business and stuff, it, you know, more people are, that's what they would probably prefer to do. I mean, and they can make good money of that. But that's not going to change your country. That is not going to have the type of change that we wish to enact in our country. Not everybody's going to be fully developed, dedicated to uh, counter-elite activities or whatever you want to call it. But we need more of those people. We have a huge deficiency in this matter. And the right's answer is just to impose trade school on everyone and just assume that one, one day we'll have a plumbing business strike that topples the woke the woke mind virus or something which is just stupid but a lot of this is just that conservatism is increasingly an ideology of downward ec economic downward mobility and a lot of the people we went over are resentful of the fact that liberal bugmen seem to be more successful than them i some i don't think that's necessarily the case but a lot of people are very resentful at some of the power that liberal elites have and instead of like trying to challenging them on their own field they just want to assume that at some point in time we're going to have a uh, we're going to put all soft hands people into concentration camps and we're going to have the plumber reich or something uh, i want to i want i you know people are saying like you don't ever know what's going to happen in politics i can guarantee you this the the plumber reich is not going to happen and so that's my that's going to be that is my answer to K Max question about this stuff. It hasn't always been the case, but it's just more of it. And some of the elites just are becoming more liberal over time. But the right's advice to young people is only making that problem worse. So we have three more questions. Um. Let's see. I think this is this is future American refugee. He asked the residential uh, district suburb Buckhead, Georgia, attempted to secede from Atlanta, but was rejected by the Georgia legislature last year. This may be something you discussed when it was in the news at the time. As you know, Buckhead, which is an affluent conservative white suburban area located in a liberal city with a liberal county, is not an abnormality. There are suburban districts just like Buckhead in every state in the country. In this country, these localities do not have the benefit of self-governance. Instead, they foot the bill for the far-left destructive policies to the local municipalities they are in. Can you share your thoughts on the idea of suburban districts located in blue counties, blue cities, seceding and creating their own towns? There are legal methods that this can be done through referendums and state legislatures. Is a movement involving the secession of suburban districts viable, and would it be productive? As far as I'm concerned, the only other alternative is escapism, which for the reasons you discussed is not a very good option. Why move to the neighboring rural red county with all the problems it has? when you could just make your, your home its own place where you're governing yourselves free from the city. Thanks, Scott. Thank you. You know, you, thank you. Uh, no, it's absolutely viable. I mean, Buckhead secession was about to happen, but the thing is, is, uh, Atlanta is, I know some people may disagree, but the people I know from Atlanta, it is improving a little bit. It, it is becoming a lot wider, uh, than it was before. There is, it is one of these thriving Southern cities. It's having more problems than say Nashville or Charlotte, 
but it's going in a direction. Now it does have a crime problem or was having a crime problem. It still probably has a crime problem. Some of the crime problem uh, in some of these areas have has slightly diminished. But Buckhead was wanting to leave because Atlanta wasn't doing anything about their crime problem. And they were tired of footing the bill. And they wanted to leave. But uh, Georgia realized that this would uh, <laughs> impoverish Atlanta, you know, their, their core city. And uh, Georgia's uh, Republicans were like, uh, no, we don't actually want to allow this because they know that it would destroy it would, you know, turn Atlanta into one of these shithole southern cities It would probably put Atlanta on the track of becoming uh, a Memphis or a Jackson. Maybe not as bad as Jackson, but a, a, a definitely a Memphis. And so they're like, you got to stay in the town. Um, I understand that argument because you could say by keeping them there, it makes Atlanta a little bit better of a place. Obviously, it's going to stay blue, but, you know, there's a way that they could have, you know, a moderate Democrat who's tough on crime, you know, tries to reduce taxes and other things and maybe make things a little bit better. I know that's not very exciting for our side, but maybe that would still make it a place worth living. But some suburban districts... You know, there's no viable path. Like that's the some cities are just too far gone. You know, it's uh, well Memphis. I don't know where it would secede because the problem is they're infecting the entire county with the uh, with the magic from Memphis and like whole Shelby County. You know, there would be used to be these nice suburbs and with nice suburban schools, and they've just been taken over by uh, the magic from Memphis. So the it has problems with that. I think Tennessee legislature would be fully supportive of letting the rest of the county to separate from from Memphis and creating its own county. But it's it's perfectly viable. It just depends on the situation. I would say uh, for certain cities, yes, I would say I'm supportive of it. With Buckhead, I've talked to a couple different people. Some people were opposed to it because, you know, they simply think it's by eliminating Buckhead, it prevents Atlanta from becoming a better city. Uh but others were fully supportive of it because it'd be you know a redder area and it would be governing itself. But I, I would say I'm fully supportive of it. It's definitely a viable option. I think for a lot of cities, it's their only option uh, for the nice areas there. There are there are still some nice suburbs in, especially with red states, where you don't have to move entirely to the rural area. I mean, there's others where you know, bluer states where it's tougher to move out to or where some of the crime is following them into the suburbs. You don't have to move entirely into a rural area. There's still like many red suburbs around. I mean, Nashville is surrounded by deep red suburbs. And that's not even with all the people moving to Nashville, that's not going to change for years and years and years. So it just depends. But yeah, I, I support that type of secession. And it's easily viable and easy to be done all you have to have is the state legislature to approve it at least that was the case with buckhead uh the problem is the state legislature felt that it would hurt the georgia economy and so they opposed it a little bit of a disappointment but obviously for a lot of these red state republicans their main concern is business interests and securing more business for their state and georgia republicans are no different so i have Two more questions, I believe. This is from John Chandler. He asks, if my numbers are correct, the Republican Party only seems to get between 57 and 59% of the white vote in presidential elections. That's, that is correct. 
I am curious to hear your thoughts on why this is and what the GOP could do if you think it is possible to grow the number to somewhere closer to 70%. Surely that would be much more obtainable than trying to win over half the vote with various minority groups. And not against the latter as long as it doesn't go against pro-white and America first principles, but the former shouldn't be impossible. Uh, I had a tweet about this last week and I'm writing an article about the white electorate. It is very tough to get to 70% because a lot of whites, you, you think that White voters operate like blacks, and it's like we offer more benefits for blacks, and thus blacks vote for us. It's like what Democrats do. Uh, that's not the case with whites. Uh, whites uh, have a little bit different interests. And when we were talking about the sailor strategy in the 2010s you know, and 2000s in opposition to the brain-dead establishment republicanism, it was about winning over working-class whites or more working-class whites and not appearing as the country club party. Because we were winning over plenty of college-educated whites who were successful, but we were losing the non-college. We were not doing as well as we should among non-college-educated whites. Uh, Trump won over the non-college-educated whites and working-class whites, and that's why he won in 2016. The problem is, is we're losing college-educated whites. We're now losing the suburbanites, and it's not like oh, we're you know we're being fully engaged in white identity politics now. We can get at 70 percent. Uh, they have different interests. They have a lot of status conscious about why they're not voting Republican. And they do not, uh, would not necessarily be in favor of some of the stuff we would propose. Because I, you know, when I posted this tweet uh, about this, you know, the electorate is still 75% white and Republicans get, you know, 58% of the vote, uh, a white vote. Like it can go down. I think Trump got less. I think it was, it might have been under 57% in 2020. But everyone's advocating. It's like, okay, now we just, we need like some form of white nationalism for that. It's like, that's not what's going to win over the suburbanites. So it becomes a difficult question because suburbanites and the non educated have different interests and different styles of what they like. I mean, the non educated whites love Trump's WWE style. The suburbanites aren't as thrilled with it. And a lot of them don't want to vote for Trump because they view it as low status and clownish to do so. And they also don't want to vote for the Republican Party in itself because of that association, which I prefer Trump over the alternatives. But once you have post-Trump, you're going to have the clownishness without Trump's positive attributes. And I think you're going to see this problem uh, continue. So it's tough because... A lot of what we would have thought with the Staler strategy would be doubled down on the cool stuff we like, like, you know, firm anti-immigration stuff, like firm hostility to, well, firm hostility to affirmative action is very popular, um, and so is tough on crime. But a lot of the other stuff that we're fully into or what people say is like, we need to double down on social conservatism. It's like, that's what's losing the college-educated white vote, which people don't want to hear. And other things that we're very into, people don't want to hear too. And it's like, we need more conspiracy theories. We need more clownishness. We need more, we need to ban IVF and genetic testing for, for, for fetuses. And then it's like, uh, this is actually not very popular among whites and you're actually losing the white vote, but people don't want to admit it. And uh, uh, I, it would be better to grow the white vote to just even over 60%. I mean, if you got if Trump got over 60 percent of the white vote, he would win easily, you know. But at the same time, it's like how to achieve that is not, is a hard question. And I would say 
the one thing that we could do is to make a more presentable party and to not emphasize this is going to be extremely unpopular for our audience, but not to emphasize some of the social conservatism as much, at least when it comes around abortion. But the conservative audience does is obviously opposed to that. And so that's that's an issue that we that we're going to have to deal with. But if we if we were serious about bumping it up uh, to a higher amount, it probably would have to have a party that was more like Trump in the way he ran in 2016 on social conservatives and even how he's running in 2020, but maybe or 2024 rather it's forgot the year we're in. It, and you could have his policies and stuff, but maybe a little bit more polished style. And I think you could win, you know, over 60% of the white vote. But it's going to be tough to sell that to our core audience. <laughs> and that's one of our chief predicaments we have at the moment. So that's my answer to that question. And the final question, I think this is Dollar Bill. Yes, this is Dollar Bill. He has got a two-parter. He's, what are your thoughts on Sam Hyde? He's pretty right-wing, which makes him a breath of fresh air compared to other comedians who seem to have all converged into being obnoxious, militant libtards. I'm sure you've seen the conversations on Twitter speculating if George Carlin lived into the 2020s, he'd be calling for Trump supporters and the unvaccinated to be rounded up and put into camps. George Carlin would do that. I like Sam Hyde. It, it's remark- it is a big deal about how big he has gotten from his day of million dollar extreme. It does show this is also somewhat of a wokeness or cancel culture not really operating is that, you know, he had a show on Adult Swim in 2016 and we're like, this is huge, this is major. And then he got canceled for alt-right stuff and people are like, oh, he's done. But then he built himself up. He's more popular than ever than he was in 2016. And no one gives a shit about his alt-right associations or alt-right rhetoric that he's uh been involved in and now he makes a pretty successful comedian some of the stuff he does is really funny some of the stuff i don't find is funny um but i'm glad that someone like that is succeeding and is really canceling cancel culture with his success and two are there any writers you consider as influences on your writing style on writing style not so much i guess um i like clear direct writing i don't like overwriting i don't like people thinking they're trying to write a novel I just like saying, you know, you're you make your you spell out your arguments. You have a little bit of humor with the with it, but it's not a writing style that's obsessed with just hearing yourself with seeing yourself right. Which a lot of conservatives and right wingers, I, I saw this even when I was working in the Daily Caller. They thought that good writing was just overwriting and just being over 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 the top and imagining you're writing this beautiful brilliant essay and then the whole or showing about how erudite you are and then the there would be no argument there i see that a lot in some of the writing i read and uh some stuff it's just there's other type of style that i think is common is that a lot of guys don't put a coherence or structure in the writing they just string along tweets and it's just supposed to be like kind of red meat for their audience they just like it's like tweet, 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 tweet. And it's like, there's no structure here. There's no argument here. It's just like tweets after one and another. It's just strung along tweets. Uh, so I like to be clear and direct and have uh, an argument I'm trying to make. And I don't try to be too fancy and over the top and overwrite. So I guess some influences. Uh, Sam Francis was very much in the same way. Uh, Jared Taylor was in the same way. Um, 
Richard Hanani is in the same way, but I've already had my rich writing style before I re uh, read Richard Hanani. Uh, even though I can't support all of Hanani's arguments or writing, I do appreciate his writing because unlike a lot of other people, it, he is not someone who's just wanting to hear see himself right and there's no arguments. There are clear, direct arguments. It, it goes along. It's a, it's a very good writing style. The problem is, is some of his arguments and what he's writing about are... Uh, disagreeable to say the least so I would say that with my writing style but I, I think a lot of it, the influence comes from reading academic works I primarily read history mostly academic history not popular history and I didn't really read a lot of journalists um, writing is what a lot of people in media they read journalists you know they read Christopher Hitchens and Hunter S. Thompson. Hunter S. Thompson, too many people read, and they all try to imitate that writing style. And it's like, please don't write that writing style. You're not you're not good at this. They all want to be gonzo journalists. I, I very much uh, do not like that writing style. And even if you read like journalistic books, the, the type of writing is just dumb. It's like they set up a long-winded anecdote, and it has nothing to do with what they're writing about. Academic history, it's like, here's the facts, here's the data, here's what they were saying. I'm putting this into a coherent structure. I'm a, I'm letting you know what the larger context of this was or this event happening, what else was going on, what influenced these decisions. And I try to incorporate that mindset and that way of writing uh, versus a lot of what the uh, influences of other people in media have been, which is generally Hunter S. Thompson. <laughs> so... That is, so that's my answer to those questions. And that is it for this highly respected. It's been a bit of a long episode, but I'm sure you guys enjoy it. We're going to have more great content for the rest of the week. So be on the lookout for that. So until next time, stay respected.